VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshat Rati. This week, produce, profits, and perfume. Clean tech is a tough industry. Sure, if you invent a zero-carbon tech that's both scalable and cheaper than the fossil fuel alternative, you can make billions of dollars. But many ambitious green companies struggle to turn a profit. Farming, which has been around a whole lot longer than clean tech, is also a notoriously hard business to make money from. Vertical farming combines both of these things, and the entrepreneurs behind it are attempting something extremely difficult turning what has been done forever on the x-axis into something on the y, while also recreating natural conditions such as sunlight, rain and wind in a completely artificial environment. The tech for modern-day vertical farming was pioneered in the 1990s and it has a big promise. If it can be successfully scaled, and that's a big if, it will use vastly less land, less water, fewer pesticides and fertilizer. It'll cut down on shipping, it can be done in the heart of cities, and on and on. The environment would be perfectly controlled, meaning crops are less likely to be affected by storms, droughts, floods, or disease. That will all become worse as we continue to warm the planet. But all of this requires a huge amount of energy to replace the sun and recreate what nature gives for free. And because energy costs have gone up around the world, it is increasingly hard for vertical farms to break even. This year has seen several companies enter bankruptcy as they've struggled to crack the vertical farming business model. Can you do tubers, potato, carrots? Yeah, you can do anything. But do you really think there is a financial equation growing potatoes in a vertical farm? I'm not sure. I don't know the economics of lettuce. That is Gilles Dreyfus, the CEO of vertical farming company Jungle based in France. And you can hear he's kind of outraged that I would even suggest growing such a low-value food. Because he has to sell premium products to turn a profit. And that is where the promise of vertical farms falls short. Instead of growing bountiful indoor fields of staple crops like wheat, they mostly produce aromatic herbs or lettuce. Don't get me wrong, I like lettuce, but it's not going to feed the world. I recently had the opportunity to visit two different vertical farming startups, Jungle in Paris and Grow Grace in Singapore, and sat down with the founders to learn about why their specific way of farming is going to make it, what they grow instead of potatoes, and the biggest challenges for the industry going forward. Come closer, come closer. We are in uh, one of the six chambers that we have here. And it's a separated climate control, so separated environment. That's the voice of Gilles Dreyfus again, stopping me getting crushed by a giant tray of coriander plants descending from high up above me. There is six meters by seven, so 42 square meter footprint with nine meters high. And on each side, you have 26 layers. 
So the net cultivation area is close to 400 square meter. I'm with Zero's producer Oscar Boyd at Jungle's vertical farm on the outskirts of Paris. It's almost evening and we're in the kind of dimly lit purple room that would look good in a Drake music video. So basically it's the night time, they're sleeping. <laughs> Do you sing to them lullabies or of course, you know, good music? In Lisbon, I, I played the saxophone. I was playing saxophone with the plants. And I, I tend to believe that it had a real effect on them. In the trays are rows and rows of tiny seedlings of aromatic herbs like coriander, basil, and Japanese shiso, all controlled by a central computer system that is monitoring the room's climate. Outside the room, one of the agronomists pushes a button and a nozzle floods a tray with water and nutrients. Can you give me guys the size and how much water you use? Here in our system, we use 98% less water than in uh, traditional agriculture. We flood, each plant takes what it needs, we recuperate the water so we don't lose anything. From above, the growth of each of the plants is closely monitored by infrared cameras to check that they are healthy and to make sure that the maximum number of crops can be harvested each year. We can monitor Everything that is going on, we know from uh, the cotyledons, the two first leaves, uh, how it's going to grow, and then the stem, how big it is. And from this infrared, we know exactly if the plant that we're talking about is growing in the right pattern. And also, we, we basically gather all this data together to make all our cycle better and better. This is one of many chambers at Jungle, some of which we are allowed in, some of which are off-limits because of confidentiality agreements. In those chambers, Jungle is growing plants to make perfumes for major brands. Each room has a different climate to suit the conditions needed for the plants growing there. There's also a bunch of warehouse space and a dedicated room for germination. The beginning of the life of the plant, germination room. What's the humidity in here? 95. It's nice, huh? Yeah. yeah. Should we do the interview here? <laughs> it's all very high tech for farming. And it is well beyond the pilot stage. There are real plants being grown on a real vertical farm that are being sold across Europe. But it has taken a long time, a lot of effort and a lot of money for Gilles to get his company this far. As he told me when we sat down after our tour of the farm. Gilles, welcome to the show. Thank you. Let's hear the full story of your company. When did you first think of creating a vertical farming startup? So I was working in finance. It was in 2015, January. I was reading an article about the food crisis and how we're going to feed the world by 2050. This it was a double page in the Financial Times. And uh, at the end of the article, there were three lines on vertical farming. And I was like, I've never heard about this. It's fascinating. So I started researching during nighttime and then it took over my work. I was obsessed. I went to meet the the father of the concept in New York, uh, very soon after that, a guy called Dixon Depomier. He's an emeritus professor from Columbia University. And he took me with him the following week to the first world conference on the topic in Vegas. So we're in 2015. The place that has no water. Yes, absolutely. And honestly, the people that were there and what I heard made me felt like I was at the right place at the right time for the first time in my life. So I came back to Paris, quit my job, and started to travel around the world to try to understand what existed. I spent some time in Japan, which is the beginning of uh, commercial vertical farming. I spent some time in Texas, which is was the, the base of the tech 
for vertical farming because the LEDs that we're, we're using in a control environment come from 40 years of research by NASA that wanted to grow some plants in the ISS, you know, for astronauts in long missions. And I spent obviously a lot of time in New York where all the big operations started with aero farms, Bowery farming. I also met my partner there, uh, Nicholas, on a rooftop farm by chance. I didn't know him. And we were the two French people uh, in this game. And uh, Intellectually, it clicked pretty rapidly, and uh, basically this is how Jungle was born in uh, March 2016. Gilles and his team initially began research on crops and vertical farming methods in Portugal. But in 2019, with the support of French supermarket Monoprix, Jungle moved to its current location, a 4,000 square meter farm just outside Paris. In 2021, it secured a $50 million investment to help fund its expansion. You spent three years figuring out research and development for 100 crops that you learn how to grow them in a controlled environment, what to feed them. Now you're running a commercial operation. How many of those 100 crops do you grow today? So we have uh, 12 commercial products ah. out of those 100. And we have eight others that we are commercially active, whether it's perfume or cosmetic. So, so we are commercially active on 20 crops. That's it. Okay. So when we think about vertical farming, because of the way the plants are grown, where the environment is controlled, there is no soil, there's only water and nutrients, does that mean there are certain types of crops that can never be made in a vertical farm? Agronomically, you can do whatever you want in a vertical farm. It has to make financial sense. It all comes down to that. So there's one thing you cannot do is truffles, because truffles grow in soil. But you can do mushrooms. Can you do tubers, potato, carrots? Yeah, you can do anything. But there, do you really think there is a financial equation growing potatoes in well, a vertical farm? I'm not sure. I don't know the economics of lettuce. Is it financially viable growing lettuce in yeah, a vertical it is. farm? Uh, the, the, basically, so is financial viable, what does that mean? All the companies in vertical farming started and are very much focused on aromatic herbs. Why is that? Because the price per kilo of aromatic herbs is very high because it's a very light product. It has a life cycle that is very short and the morphology of aromatic herb is not so high and not so large. So basically density you can have per square meter is very important. Basil, for instance, which is our best seller and the best seller of most vertical farming companies, in the best place, which is south of France of northern Italy, and it has like three or four harvests per year. Here at Jungle, we do 14. So four zero. No, one oh. four. Sorry. That would be crazy. <laughs> that would be a good model. So basically, what makes it viable is how long is the growing cycle, but also how much are you going to sell it, who you're going to sell it to. Do you package it or do you sell it bulk? Because this has a big impact on the price. And we're never going to do, to answer your question, we're never going to do fruit trees. We're never going to do lemon, oranges, because then the height doesn't make any sense. We're not for now, we're going to do main crops such as wheat, soy, corn, because it doesn't make any sense. But maybe one day it will. So what does make sense? Besides selling aromatic herbs, Jungle makes a lot of its money selling flowers to perfume houses. We weren't able to go into the perfume growing rooms, but Gilles did tell us about the success of one particular flower, Lily of the Valley, that the startup is growing for the perfume company, Fermanish. When you talk about perfume or cosmetic, it's a very different approach. 
because as we did it with the lily of the valley, it never existed as a natural compound in a perfume. The flowering cycle of lily of the valley is too short in nature to be extracted. It flowers only once a year, between seven to 10 days, depending on seasons. And the extraction cycle lasts between two to three months. So not enough time and not enough quantity, obviously. With our partnership with Firminish, they asked us to, to try lily. So we secured the genetics. We did the R&D to determine the right recipes and we were able to grow them in sufficient quantities so that they could extract. Because to, ex to make an extraction and a viable extraction, you need a lot Lots. of biomass. Yeah. And basically the chromatographic report, the toxicological report, and the nose, so the people who have this job, said that they never got any, anything like that in their hands. So when you look at this type of crop that never existed as a natural compound, of course the price is much higher because it never had a price. So we needed to determine the price. But now... In terms of crops for perfume and cosmetics, it varies from a few euros to a few thousands of euros. Per kilo. Per kilo. And a, a, a company like Firmanish, so our partners, they use 1,500 different variety of crops per year. And we are eligible in our system of 25% of that. So basically, it's about 300 plants. 300 that we species could grow. of plants. You species could grow. of plants, yes, sir. Because of yes. the height and the requirement. Yes. And in those plants, you have lily of the valley that we created, but also you have mint, you know, because these companies, they do flavors and fragrances. It's called FNF, it's the, the industry. So they use mint for perfume, but they use also mint to create a taste for any product that you could find in retail. Right. So your business moves from making herbs to actually making much high-value products. You don't need to make herbs. Not exactly. We develop strong relationships with customers, so we are happy to keep that going, and it's part of our revenue, so it's important to, to stabilize that. And if you realize in terms of quantity, perfume is one, uh, on a scale to one to 100. Perfume is one, cosmetic is 10, and food is 100. In volume. So, in volume. Right. So it's a different price structure, but it's also a different volume. It's a different business model. Right. So we need to carry on growing food, and we will carry on growing food. And we want to go about R&D to develop a lot of other things. And herbs that you produce here and then you sell in supermarkets, are they cheaper than what's already available in the supermarket grown in the wild? They are the same price as the... The basic stuff. In France, and I'm going to talk about France because I've studied that market pretty much. So we are entry-level price for the same weight, but we have virtues of using a lot less water, zero pesticide, and lots of taste, and basically grown locally. So in France, if you want to address a market and you're a newcomer, you're not going to say, okay, I have all these virtues and I'm going to be more expensive. In the States, it's a different game because agriculture is not the same. The guys that are producing in uh, vertical farms, they have a price premium to their product. Right. Here, it doesn't work. It's all well and good for vertical farms to grow perfume crops and aromatic herbs. But to feed the world, they'll need to start growing staples like wheat, soy and corn. On this front, there has been some progress. In November last year, an Amsterdam-based startup called InFarm managed to grow wheat for the first time. And it said they could grow six harvests a year compared with just one in open field farming. However, that same startup closed down its European operations 
earlier this summer. Gilles compares progress in vertical farming to the recent history of another green industry with well-documented boom and bust cycles, the solar industry. Vertical farming could have a parallel with the renewable energy sector, with the solar power energy. Why? In the beginning of the 2000, you had a, a, a solar panel that was expensive, that was heavy. And through innovation, investment and time, it became profitable. Vertical farming is exactly the same. You're going to have a machine, the capex of the machine is going to be divided by two or go even lower than that. The output that we get today at Jungle, we have between 45 to 55 kilo of biomass per square meter per year. This could go to 80, 100 or even above 100 kilos. So many crops that were not profitable are going to become profitable. Right. So we're talking about tomatoes, raspberries, strawberries, and also cucumbers, zucchinis, chilies, basically between 50 to 60% of anything that you can find in a supermarket. And we can go even beyond that. Thank you for the tour and for the conversation. Thank you. A lot will need to go right for vertical farms to scale up globally. But advances are being made and vertical farming is being tested right around the world. There are now farms in Japan, Saudi Arabia, the Netherlands, the US and other places. And when you talk to people about why vertical farming is important, one reason you often hear is reducing water consumption. The closed loop environment means that water can be recycled and reused. Another is improving food security, especially in smaller countries that have little land available for farming and who rely heavily on food imports. On my recent tour of startups in Asia, I was able to visit a second vertical farm in Singapore, a country that is 100% urban. That's coming up after the break. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. So, would you like to guess how much lettuce we harvest every week? Now, I'm in Singapore, talking with Grace Lim, a co-founder of Grow Grace, that opened its first proof-of-concept vertical farm in summer 2022. Even for an untrained eye, there are some physical differences between this farm and the one I saw in Paris. What's being grown is a little bit different, the trays are larger, there's more vertical space between them. But technology-wise, it's a similar idea. Grow Grace is growing a lot of lettuce. So much that Grace has found it hard to find enough buyers. Right, so assuming that all the lettuce weigh 200 grams, how much do you think we harvest every week? One ton. 
Okay, so we harvest 1.2 tons every oh, week. So that is, yes, very good actually. Actually, not many people get so close. A lot of people will say like, okay, 300 kg. So it seems I'm good at guessing the volume of things. It's a side benefit maybe of spending years in a chemistry lab. Anyway, that is a lot of lettuce. And even though Grace does have some buyers, she told me how difficult it is to turn a profit. So that is about 6,000 heads of lettuce every week. And that's a lot of lettuce, which is why I have trouble bringing this farm to profitability because it takes a long time for us to establish a relationship with the buyer, right? And then also at the same time, even if these buyers want to support me, they cannot buy more of one variety, but they can support different crops that I grow. So which is why R&D is very important. Finally on the tour, Grace showed us the rainwater that they harvest. So this farm utilizes 100% rainwater and that is our 16 cubic meter rainwater harvesting tank. And the rainwater that's being harvested is on the roof of this building? Yes, that's right, it's from the roof of this building. Yeah. Right? So in Singapore, harvesting rainwater is illegal. You need a special license to uh, harvest rainwater because if everybody starts to harvest rainwater commercially, then our reservoir will be empty. What did you have to do to get a license for rainwater harvesting? Well, basically, you have to fill up uh, a lot of forms and submit it to PUB. <laughs> PUB, or the Public Utilities Board, is the water authority in Singapore and Grace's application was approved. The government of Singapore has a lot of incentive to reduce food and water imports, because currently, it imports over 90% of its food and more than half of its water. The island also doesn't have much land to grow crops. That's one of the many things Grace and I talked about after the tour. Grace, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Akshat. You have been operating this vertical farm for the past year almost. Just walk us through the story of how you got into vertical farming. Okay, so this happened, I think, quite many years ago when I was a mother raising young children. And I remember being very concerned about what I feed to my children. So I was giving them a lot of vegetables, thinking that it's very good for them. And at some point, I came to realize that a lot of these vegetables that I've been feeding my children are coming from countries which grow them using a lot of pesticides. So that made me really angry and really sad. So then I decided to uh, grow my own vegetables at home. And at one time, I was growing 36 different types of vegetables. So one day, I was harvesting kale with my son. And we harvested two big baskets of kale. And we started juicing them and making them into kale chips. And I remember at that moment, I experienced immense joy in my heart because I was feeding my children clean, healthy produce that we grew in my own garden. And at that moment, I had an epiphany and I told myself how wonderful it would be if I can bring this clean, nutritious food to fellow Singaporeans. And the farm that you ended up building cost about 3 million Singapore dollars and you had to bring in a number of partners to be able to build it. What was the challenge and, and who were these partners? Yeah, so I formed a company with my two sisters, but they're just sleeping shareholders. And we put in some money there. And then also my Dutch partners. So they are a consortium. So they came in as a single shareholder, but the Dutch consortium consists of a few parties. The Dutch consortium backing GrowGrace includes eight companies whose expertise is in various aspects of vertical farming, lighting, climate control, seeds, and growing materials. The farm costs $3 million to build, but we do have support from Singapore Food Agency as well. And why was it that 
the Dutch consortium was so crucial for your farm? So when I wanted to do this project, I did a lot of research and I've learned that the Dutch are world leaders in agricultural innovation. The Netherlands is the second largest exporter of vegetables to the rest of the world. So when I wanted to do this, I knew I only wanted to partner with the best in class and it's Dutch technologies. And indeed, I wouldn't compromise uh, the type of technology that I would use in the farm because everyone can grow, including myself, I can grow 36 different types of vegetables in my garden. But how much can you grow? What is your yield? What is the quality of your produce? And are you able to grow consistently? Are you able to grow in an energy efficient and water efficient way? That's a whole different ballgame, right? And for me, the technology play a critical role, which is why the Dutch involvement is very important for me in this project. And the technology you use uh, with your Dutch partners is a bit different from the technology that is used in most vertical farms. But recently, there have been a spate of vertical farms going bankrupt. Why are you confident that what you are doing uh, will succeed? One thing that we have done differently from these, all these other indoor farms or the indoor farms that have not been successful is that we do not create our own technologies. We work with technologies that have been proven to be very successful all over Europe and America in greenhouse environments. So these technologies have already been used in greenhouses for decades and they have been growing tons of food very successfully. And what we did was bring these proven and patented technologies to Singapore and we integrate them using local engineering and construction expertise into an indoor vertical environment. Based on my understanding and from what my Dutch partners and I have uh, investigated, a lot of these indoor farms that failed put their own technologies together. And technologies take time to mature. And when you put something new together, you have to constantly tweak it, you know, you have maintenance issues, your reaction time may not be as fast because you're not familiar with it. So it takes time to mature. And I think because of that, they just run out of funds to further improve on the tech. GrowGrace uses technology from a Dutch company called Dry Hydroponics. The name of the company is also the name of the technology. And it may sound a little like an oxymoron. The dry part is that until the roots grow, they don't have constant contact with water. That's the difference between GrowGrace and other vertical farms. And that intervention early in the life of the plant, according to Grace, forces the plant to use less water as it grows. The plant starts off in a substrate made from a mixture of peat and is flooded with artificial light. It's all minimal from a materials point of view. One of the reasons why vertical farms have been going bankrupt is because the produce they make does not generate as much revenue as they need to be able to pay for uh, all the energy and all the equipment that they have spent money on. Um, so what is it that you are growing and are you able to make money? So growing indoor is definitely much more expensive than growing in a greenhouse or growing in an open field. But being able to grow indoor means that we can control all the growing parameters. And when we can control all the growing parameters, we're talking about precision farming. And that is when you can grow perfect heads of lattices, perfect crops. And these perfect crops, in my opinion, are considered premium produce. And when it's premium produce, you can command a premium price. 
even though this is not my vision, because my vision is to be able to grow premium crops that is also affordable to heartlanders. Unfortunately, at this point, we are paying sky high energy prices, so we cannot afford to do that. But I totally see that this scenario will change in the near future if we are able to tap on renewable energy. But meanwhile, yes, we have to sell this as premium crops for a premium price. And there is a demand for premium produce in Singapore because we are importing a lot of premium produce from Japan, from Korea, from Australia, and from Europe. And my intention for Grow Grace 1, which is this farm that you visited, is to just replace these imports from these countries that I've just listed. And roughly, if you were to split the costs of running the plant, how much is it energy? How much is it labor? How much is it equipment? Okay. So, unfortunately, energy com comprises uh, uh, 50% of the overall cost of production. And labor, 25%. And the other 25% is nutrients, seeds, maintenance, ad hoc repairs. So, this is a pilot farm? And you have plans to expand it, right? Yes. So this is our proof of concept. And obviously, it has proven to be very successful. So right now, I need to prove the value of the farm. This is where I have to work really hard on sales, sell all the produce with a margin. And then from there, I can attract investors to invest in an expanded uh, or rather an upscale uh, Grow Grace 2, which I have intended to build just next to the existing farm. So... It is very important for me to build a much bigger farm because we started this company to contribute to food security. We want to be able to grow, to bring a significant impact uh, to Singapore. And our vision really is to uh, turn growing cities into thriving farms. We want to be able to build a big indoor farm in every city centre, starting with Asia. Right, so yes, we want to build an upscale farm. But before we can do that, we need to take the learnings from building this first farm uh, into the design and engineering of the second farm. Even though Grow Grace is, is a great farm, but we have learned that we can further optimize it for it to be more efficient, more energy efficient, operationally more efficient as well. And in order to do this uh, study, in order to do this value engineering, we need to put together a technical committee, you know, to, to, to study the lessons that we have learned when we built this POC, this proof of concept. And for that, we will require investment money. So you're, right now you're trying to raise money? Yes, we are trying to raise $5 million for a stake in the company. Yeah, so, and I really want to attract investors who believe in our vision, who believe that the future of farming is indoor, who want to bring food security to cities, and who want to contribute to sustainable agriculture. The substrate you use is uh, peat moss and other organics. Where does it come from? Because peat itself is not a sustainable material. I have been looking into this as well, and I have been speaking to the founder of Dry Hydroponics, who is the designer of the recipe for this substrate. And at this moment, I don't have an answer for you, but we are looking for a more sustainable ingredient for the substrate. Bloomberg Green's Cheryl Lee, who is based in Singapore, was with me on the Grow Grace tour. She asked how much produce Grow Grace sells each month and what amount they need to sell to be profitable. So I'm able to sell 50% of the produce uh, unfortunately, at a loss because when I started growing in November, I need to find a buyer very quickly just to cover costs, right? 
So I was able to find a buyer to offtake half of the um, harvest, which is about 600 kg, but I'm selling it at a loss. And then the other half, I would say I'm so far I'm able to sell 25% at a profit and the other 25% of the harvest are still unsold. And my plan, my strategy is to be able to offer more crops to buyers because it makes total sense that one buyer cannot buy more of one crop from you, but they can buy more varieties from you. So I know that my current buyers are very supportive of Grace, and what I have to do is just to offer them different products, different crops. And that's something that I'm working very hard on, which is why we are experimenting. We're doing R&D every few months for new crops. And when do you expect to break even? If I'm able to sell all my crops at a profit, which I'm working towards, I foresee that we will be able to be profitable in the first quarter of 2024. Right. So that's uh, breaking even within two years of building it. No, no, no. Not breaking even, but um, to have the farm stop bleeding and start seeing some money coming in. Yeah. But breaking even is, is going to take years. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Akshat. There's a logical allure to the idea of vertical farming. Saving on water, soil and land is a crucial climate solution, as we learned from George Monbiot in an episode we ran a few weeks back. Vertical farming also evokes a utopian science fiction world, one that we expect future humans will need. But figuring out the business model right now is not straightforward. It will need the persistence of people like Gilles and Grace to crack it. Thanks so much for listening to Zero. If you want to check out some of the reporting on green tech from my trip to Singapore, it is linked in the show notes. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate and review it. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Send it to a friend or someone who eats a lot of leafy greens. Get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks this week to Cheryl Lee, Natasha White, and Kira Bindram. I'm Akshatrati, back next week. <laughs>